one of whom famously was an Instagram influencer. By day, he's posing next to the pool, and by night, he's helping the North Koreans launder millions of dollars of stolen money. From billion-dollar cyber highs to global money laundering rings and crypto gangsters, this week's The Laundry Guest, Jeff White, has covered it all. His work has been featured in multiple outlets, including BBC, Sky News, and The Sunday Times. Jeff's first book, Crime.com, was released in August 2020 and discussed the rise of cybercrime as a pressing threat. One chapter in the book focused on North Korea's growth as a cyber superpower, which then inspired the BBC podcast series The Lazarus Heist. The Lazarus Heist debuted as the number one podcast in the UK and one of the top seven podcasts in the US. Now the hackers are back. On the 27th of March, The Lazarus Heist returned for season two. The season will investigate the group's new tactics, which have included targeting cryptocurrency businesses, as well as their past successes, such as hacking Sony Pictures Entertainment. North Korea's denial of involvement will also be explored. Welcome to The Laundry, Jeff. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a great honor to have you on, Jeff. But for our listeners who might not never have heard of the Lazarus Group, why don't you start telling us what is it? What is the Lazarus Group? Well, the Lazarus Group is a, a team of computer hackers who've been around for really more than 10 years uh, as it stands. Um, the reason they're called the Lazarus Group, by the way, is that when they get inside your computer networks, your tech security people try and kill them off. But just like the Christian saint Lazarus, they tend to come back from the dead uh, and surprise you by still being around on your computer systems. Um, it's believed that the Lazarus Group work uh, on behalf of the North Korean government, which obviously is quite a surprise because the vast majority of North Korea's 25 million in inhabitants don't even have access to the internet, uh, let alone the ability to hack into other people's computers. Um, so the story of the Lazarus Heist really is the story of, as you say, how North Korea became a, a computer hacking superpower how the Lazarus Group came about, what they've been up to, and perhaps most importantly, what we can all learn from them as a result. What's so fascinating is that when you think of North Korea, you don't think about elite hackers. You think about a country that barely has access to the internet. So how are they able to carry out this operation? Where are these hackers located? Are they even in North Korea? It's a really interesting question. Um, as far as we know, and these are allegations from uh, various parties, notably the United States government, um, some of these computer hackers are operating outside, out of North Korea. Some of them are outside North Korea and other countries. So, for example, when Sony Pictures Entertainment was hacked back in 2014, it's one of the first big Lazarus Group hacks, the US government managed to trace back some of the IP addresses, the computer access addresses that were used in that attack to launch viruses at Sony and to try and hack into Sony's employees and its contractors. And they trace back some of those IP addresses to North Korea. So it does appear that some of the hacking comes from inside the country. But hacking from inside North Korea would be a really dumb idea because North Korea is one of the most surveilled countries in the world. It has a very narrow window to the internet, North Korea, compared to the billions of IP addresses that we have in other countries like yours and mine. North Korea only has really a few thousand IP addresses, a very tiny window to the internet. And that window to the internet that North Korea has is one of the most surveilled in the world. And so often what North Korea seems to do is to send its hackers overseas to its embassies and to outlets overseas, to companies overseas, so they can carry out their hacking from outside of North Korea. Not only does this mean that they can 
hide among the crowd of a much greater pool of internet users, but also they can learn from that local country because, of course, inside North Korea, knowing what's going on in the outside world, knowing what other people are thinking, what they're doing, how they use the internet is going to be difficult. But if you're in somewhere like China or India or wherever, you can absorb internet culture and become a much better hacker. So for all those reasons, it's useful for North Korea's hackers to travel outside the country. So let's bring it back to the season one. I don't want to to reveal too much because I think everyone should experience the joy of hearing this podcast series for the first time. But why don't you give us a few highlights? What is the season one all about? The first season really sort of mapped out where the Lazarus Group came from. So I made that for the BBC World Service uh, with my co-host, Jean Lee, who is a journalist who spent a great deal of time in North Korea. She actually set up the AP Bureau inside Pyongyang in the capital of North Korea. So she knows the country extremely well. So the two of us worked together to really answer that question. How did North Korea set about this sort of cybercrime journey that it's accused of taking. So we start with the Sony Pictures Entertainment attack, I say back in 2014, an amazing hack really that brought that company to its knees digitally. I mean, they were hacked so badly, they had trouble issuing paychecks to their to their employees. They had trouble waking the photocopiers and the printers work. It was, it was really a disaster for that company. And then we go through the various stages that happened thereafter. One of the big hacks, of course, Bangladesh Bank, the National Bank of Bangladesh, where the hackers tried to steal a billion dollars uh, from that bank. And then we end with the WannaCry attack, the ransomware attack that came out around the world in 2017, infected hundreds of thousands of computers and is also attributed, notably by the US government, to North Korea. And then season two, of course, picks up on all of that and fills in the uh, the remaining whatever it's six years I think we're looking at now. Criminals already use new AI technology, such as ChatGPT. If they use the technology, we must also step up our game. The Strice KYC intelligence system now combines proprietary AI technology with GPT-4 to help you fight financial crime even more effectively. Contact our sales team to find out more. What was it like researching this? How did you get started and how far down the rabbit hole did you go? Were you able to identify any of the hackers? Yeah, it was very interesting. So one of the advantages we had was that, like a lot of cyber crimes, the hacks we're talking about in season one take a while to research. It takes a while for the information to come out and it takes a while to make sense of this information and for there to be a, a story that you can actually make sense of. So you know there's been a hack, you just don't know who was behind it and what happened and how it worked. Over the time, over the several months and even years after these hacks happen, researchers do more work, they release more material, and so you can start to make sense of what happened. And in the case of the Lazarus Group and uh, the hacking of Bangladesh Bank and Sony and WannaCry, the ones I've talked about, we had two very useful things. Number one, Bangladesh Bank, when it got hacked, they sued everybody, basically. There was about 40 people that they sued. And of course, they had to make legal documents available as part of their lawsuits. So we were able to see the view from within Bangladesh Bank of what they saw happening. As well as that, we had a document from the United States government. They put out a criminal complaint against one individual hacker, a guy called Pak Jin Hyok, who's accused of being part of the Lazarus Group and accused of taking part in those hacks. And so for the US government side, they released a huge amount of information, 170 pages of information about Pak Jin Hyok and his colleagues and what they did. And you could compare that with what had happened at Bangladesh Bank and what they said, and you could kind of ca- 
tabulate the two uh, to work out what went on. So that gave us a huge advantage. We then, of course, go about interviewing as many people as we can. We interviewed the people who were first on the scene at Bangladesh Bank after it got hacked. We interviewed employees at Sony Pictures Entertainment who were there when the hack happened. So we used document sources. We also use primary sources in terms of interviewees. Uh, we're also going out doing our own research as well. And we continue doing that in, in season two. In terms of identifying hackers, well, usefully the US government has actually released the names now of three North Koreans it claims are part of the Lazarus Group. So we've been tracing their stories. And, and I don't want to do a huge spoiler alert for season two, but you, you do need to listen to the new season because Finally, after years of working, we believe we actually did manage to get in touch with someone who is a North Korean government computer hacker. I won't spoil the story, but it's worth listening to because it's quite an entertaining episode, to say the least. I'm super excited to hear season two. Uh, what can we expect from this season? Um, people who listened to season one, I think I hope enjoyed it. It seems like you did yourself. I was worried that season two would be a bit of an anticlimax, that we wouldn't quite have as many good stories. It's it's completely the opposite. I think season two gets even more crazy than season one. For a start, we cover the story of the North Koreans uh, carrying out what's called a jackpotting hack is the accusation against them. They're accused of breaking into a bank in India called Cosmos. And what they did was they changed the cash point, the ATM software, which enabled them to trigger cash points around the world to basically spew out money so they could effectively withdraw millions of dollars from cash points everywhere around the world. It was like something from a, a sci-fi movie. Um, so they managed to get that money out of the cash point. The problem then, of course, is they have to somehow have accomplices around the world who they can work with to, to do these jobs. And so they end up working with this bizarre set of characters, one of whom famously was an Instagram influencer with 2.3 million followers. So by day, he's posing next to the pool in his Gucci shoes, and by night, he's helping the North Koreans launder millions of dollars of stolen money. We also look at the cryptocurrency thefts, which of course have been huge news uh, recently. Um, many, many cryptocurrency organizations, banks, uh, sorry, exchanges and, and individuals are getting hacked and having their crypto stolen. North Korea is accused of being part of that, and it's believed they're sitting on a pile of something like $2 billion worth of stolen cryptocurrency. So we look at that. We look at how North Korea got into crypto and how it's accused of breaking into these crypto organizations. That, again, is a fascinating story for season two. So how much resources actually went into doing all this investigation and making the podcast? It's, it's a good question. I mean, to be honest, at the heart of it is three people, um, which is myself, my co-host, Jean Lee, and our, our producer, our fantastic producer. Um, um, but of course, there's an extended team around those people. We have uh, commissioners we work with, editors that we work with. We have a great sound designer who helps us create the sound that goes behind the podcast because you want to try and make people feel like they're in India or Bangladesh or Los Angeles. And so you're trying to work with somebody who can really do that job of of creating those sort of soundscapes. Uh, we also have obviously an army of lawyers who help us look through and make sure we haven't broken any laws or going to get sued. We also have marketing people who help us with it. So there's a huge team of people at the BBC who, once we've done our sort of work as a trio, they kind of help us expand outwards. And of course, an exec producer who steers the whole thing along and a, a commissioner who commissioned it in the first place. So it's a great team of people, very good team of people. That's super fascinating. Since you followed the Lazarus group for a while. Have you noticed any change in their methods over this period of time? Yes, it's interesting. Um, North Korea's Lazarus group, the, the accusation goes, have been active since something like 2008, 2009, sort of the earliest traces of that of that group. They weren't at that stage called, named the Lazarus group. That, that, that name hadn't been come up with yet. And they 
let's be clear, they don't call themselves the Lazarus Group. Um, these, if they the accusations are correct, are military individuals within North Korea. They have a, a rank in the North Korean military. So they are they're not bedroom hackers. They're not people in hoodies doing this in their spare time. They're, they're doing this for the military, for the government. Um, uh, and let's face it, other countries, our own included, have government hackers as well working away. The difference is North Korea's targeting. Uh, the accusation is that North Korea is targeting financial institutions, banks and cryptocurrency companies, and that it's using that to extract money. And the reason for that is because as North Korea has pushed ahead with its nuclear and missile program, uh, it's been cut off from the international community. It's been subject to sanctions, very severe, very strict sanctions. Uh, and so North Korea's reaction, the accusation goes, is to steal money to keep itself afloat, to keep itself going uh, as a country. Uh, and so that's been the change of tactics. The tactics have got far more advanced. And also North Korea's understanding of how the international financial system works has really developed. Some of the stuff they're doing with cryptocurrency is stuff that even as a technology journalist who's covered crypto for a while, I struggle to keep up. I struggle to comprehend the kind of things they're doing. This is the cutting edge of finance. It's the most complicated technological financial industry in the world. And North Korea, a country largely sealed off from the internet, can not only understand it, but can exploit it. That's absolutely astonishing. That really is an astonishing turn of events. Do you think the Lazarus Group will start using ChatGPT for their criminal activities? It's an interesting thought. I mean, ChatGPT, uh, you know, people have been looking into whether this can be used to assist the job of, of computer hackers. Certainly in terms of using language to craft good phishing emails, ChatGPT might be able to tidy up the language a little bit, make those emails a bit more uh, a bit more convincing. But I have to say, look, there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and so on. What we've discussed, what we've learned really about the Lazarus Group, and let's face it, loads of other cyber criminals in the last 10 years, is that the vast majority of the time, I'm talking probably 95% plus of the time, the way they get into an organization, the way they break into you, to me, to Sony, to Bangladesh, is the same. It's phishing messages. They send you an email, a message on LinkedIn, a message on Facebook containing a virus attachment or a virus link. And that's working. That is working time and time again. So appealing as it is to go down the AI route, if the basic route of approaching human beings and emailing them is working, you know, if it ain't broke, why fix it? So you mentioned that North Korea doesn't call themselves the Lazarus Group, obviously. But what do they respond to these accusations? It's a good point. Yes, North Korea uh, did respond for the first season of the Lazarus Heist. Um, we are chasing them, obviously, for a comment on season two of the program. And if any North Korean government officials are listening, please do get in touch. We'd like to hear from you. The response to the first series was that North Korea denies any connection to these hacks, and that includes Sony, Bangladesh Bank, WannaCry. Uh, it says that these are a smear campaign um, by its old adversary, the US, to try and smear North Korea as being a part of this kind of hacking uh, seen and carrying out these particular attacks. It has to be said, it's not just coming from US government, these accusations. It's also coming from people like the United Nations, various security research companies and other governments, including the UK's and places like South Korea. So there are multiple agencies and entities now putting the blame at North Korea's door. North Korea, as I said, deny any uh, involvement. So how do you get in touch with North Korea? Do you send them an email or do you call them? <laughs> What's the method here? It's it's a very good question. I've struggled with this myself because obviously in the past for stories, I've, I've wanted to get a response from North Korea. As a journalist, you always do. You always want to put your accusations to the person you're accusing so they can give you an explanation for them. It's very important. North Korea 
does have an email address. I didn't get a response from that. I did try the embassy phone number, didn't get a response from that. I did visit the embassy at one stage because I thought, well, I'll post a letter through the door. Um, the North Korean embassy is very, very unusual. All of the other embassies are in central London, big buildings with big flags outside. The North Korean embassy is in a sort of commuter suburb of London, and, and you have to travel quite far on the tube to get there. And it's in a row of just very ordinary residential houses. And then suddenly the North Korean flag. And I thought, well, this is okay. I, I found the embassy. There's a North Korean flag. I've got my letter with all my you know, points on it that I want to submit to them. And I thought, well, I'll just post that through the door, knock at the door. The problem is there kind of isn't a door. There's a big gate uh, across the driveway and parked in the driveway, two very, very sparkling new Mercedes were parked. But then the door was was some distance away and there wasn't a bell. And I thought, well, the, the fence isn't very high. I could probably jump over the fence and then I could get to the door. But if I jump over the fence, that might mean that I'm on North Korean territory and who knows what might happen then. And I thought maybe I don't want to be a headline in my own book as to what happened with me when I tried to break into the North Korean embassy. So I did manage to send the letter via uh, recorded delivery, registered delivery in the UK. And clearly the post office person, the post delivery person who sent the delivered the letter managed to get to the front door because I got a receipt uh, of notification they'd received my letter signed by a Mr. Kim, but I got no response from the North Korean embassy. However, my co-host Jean Lee, uh, because she has dealings with the North Korean government, obviously spent so much time there, managed to get a response out of them, which was really quite incredible. They don't generally respond. Uh, so we were you know, pleased to get the response and obviously very happy to, to reflect their point of view. So I want to bring it back to the money laundering part. So they have done quite a few successful hacks, got a hold of a lot of money, but how are they actually able to take that money back to North Korea and spend it on stuff? It's a really good question. And this, I'm actually writing another book at the moment for Penguin, which is about money laundering and technology and how technology is changing the industry of money laundering. And the North Koreans are going to unsurprisingly feature uh, in that book. Because one of the interesting things is, the more I've learned about computer hacking, I believe now that computer hackers and money launderers are very separate groups of people. Uh, they know each other, they work with each other. But actually, I don't think as a hacker, being able to break into a bank, for example, you would necessarily know what to do with the money once you'd got it, once you'd transferred it out. And that's certainly the case in the Lazarus Group's uh, uh, hacks. We've seen in the Bangladesh bank job, for example, the money was transferred to the Philippines, where it was pulled out and put into a casino, where it was gambled over the casino tables for something like a month. That's $81 million uh, gambled over the uh, Baccarat tables in the Philippines. That takes a huge amount of time. It also took many accomplices, dozens of accomplices, who, of course, we know the names of because the Philippines government released the names and the passport numbers as part of that exercise. So I suspect after that, the North Koreans and maybe others thought, we're not going to do that again. That was a bad idea. Let's try some different laundering tactics. When they stole money from a bank of Valletta, a bank in Malta, um, 13 million euros was attempted, uh, the attempted theft from that bank. Again, the money was pushed out to various launderers around the world, part of which was organized by this Instagram influencer called Hush Puppy, who had 2.3 million followers, who lined up bank accounts into which the money could be placed. And again, that, that didn't get done, as far as aware, by the Lazarus Group hackers. It was done by other individuals, assistants who help out with the laundering. Again, looking at cryptocurrency, you've got a big job on your hands to launder 
$2 billion worth of stolen crypto funds. Well, how do you do it? You need accomplices. You need people who can move the, the money around over-the-counter brokers who can put it into exchanges and pull it out of exchanges. The, the, the headache and the pain of money laundering is almost as big as the headache and the pain of computer hacking, but the two need to, need to go together. So this whole trend of how the laundering works and how technology is influencing it is something I've become absolutely fascinated by, largely through the North Korean example. That's fascinating. So they are basically recruiting money mules all over the world, companies and, and private individuals. Yes. So so the I talked earlier about a, an example of a hack on an Indian bank called Cosmos Bank. This was back in 2018. The hackers broke in and they managed to work out how the software worked for the ATMs, the cash points. And they managed to work out how they could trigger these cash points to withdraw cash around the world. Now, at that point, I think it was 29 different countries they managed to get cash out. For a start, they had to send out bank account details for legitimate, genuine Cosmos Bank customers to accomplices in 28 different countries who then created cloned ATM cards for those bank customers. So they, they got a blank, usually a gift card, wiped off the gift card information and encoded the card with the information of a genuine real Cosmos account holder. So that then becomes effectively a genuine ATM card. Uh, they can take that to a cash point and put it in the cash point. Now, when they did that, of course, a message goes from that cash point in wherever it is, Copenhagen, Stockholm, wherever it is, back to Cosmos Bank in India. But the hackers are inside Cosmos Bank's network. So when the message comes in saying, I would like to withdraw a thousand euros from a cash point in Stockholm, the bank back in India says yes, because the hackers are the ones pushing the button to say yes. But in order to do this, you need people on the streets carrying the cards around. And there's amazing stories about how these people get recruited. In India, for example, some of these people were told that they were taking part in a Bollywood film where there was a scene where they would go to a cash point and withdraw some money. And so that's what they were told. They would go to the cash point and insert the card, believing they were being filmed somewhere for a movie. But of course, there was no movie. They were just being tricked into being money mules for this exercise. And so the whole Indian investigation into those money mules, absolutely fascinating. And that, by the way, season first two episodes of the podcast are going to be about that. It is an astonishing story. But you're right, it relies on money mules. That's super fascinating. Yeah. So banks, financial institutions are building up huge anti-money laundering teams, while North Korea is essentially building up huge money laundering teams to have this operation going. Um, do you have any evidence or trace that they have been targeting uh, targeting banks here in the in uh, Europe? Um, I have to say, the if you look at the banks that they've gone after, I'm talking about banks, traditional banks here, they tend to go after low hanging fruit. Um, if you look at places that they've 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 hacked into, you're talking the Philippines, Vietnam, Bangladesh, India. Um, these are countries where they struggle to spend uh, as much as in places like Frankfurt, for example, and you know Scandinavian countries on 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 security. It's just it's just a fact of life, and so they're going for low hanging fruit. So previously, I would have said, well, actually, Scandinavia maybe isn't a target for them, but. The new trend for North Korea is cryptocurrency and cutting edge finance. And any country that's involved in that, and Scandinavia has some, some, some big crypto operations, and it's not just crypto exchanges, it's also the industry that surrounds them, advisors to them, um, uh, uh, consultancy firms working in crypto, they are going to be vulnerable. The North Koreans, like a lot of cyber criminals, are going to be going after 
these uh, entities. And North Korea is accused of targeting cryptocurrency companies, of course. So for that purpose, I'd say all countries around the world, but particularly financially savvy countries and financially advanced countries like Scandinavian countries should be on the watch for that. has to be said as well, North Korea has started... Um, North Korean hackers are accused of trying to get jobs at cryptocurrency companies. So this isn't just hacking into the company. This is applying for a job, getting a job at the company and working for the crypto company, at which point, of course, potentially you can steal money from the company directly as an insider. But even if you can't do that, you're inside the crypto industry. You can send phishing emails to other people at other companies. You can potentially change the code that that crypto company is working on so that there's a vulnerability in the code that you're working on that you can then exploit later on when you've left the company. That's really, really fascinating. And we actually have been looking at that sort of recruitment process and, and how North Korea's hackers get recruited into these uh, companies. So again, it's something to watch out for if you're in the financial space anywhere and you're recruiting people, particularly if they're working remotely, it's possible that it may be a, a North Korean hacker applying for the job. Really interesting to hear about all these new threats uh, emerging. So here in Norway, we actually have a famous example with uh, a crypto company called Axie Infinity, who had a Norwegian co-founder. So he started this business, this game, with some um, uh, in someone in Vietnam, I believe. But they were oh, yeah. hacked, allegedly, then by the Lazarus uh, group. So there was big press conferences here in in Norway. Um, yeah, so interesting ah, to to hear. I didn't, that's right. I didn't realize it was a Norwegian. I, I was aware the game was huge in Vietnam. I didn't realize it was a Norwegian. Yeah, I believe to... the yeah the Norwegian was the chief operating officer and co-founder. I believe so. That's an example, you know, very close to home here. Super interesting. And and again, the the money laundering picture after the Axie Infinity hack is really interesting because a lot of that money, because it was in in the form of crypto um, tokens. Um, was sent to uh, a mixer, which washes the crypto around with other bits of crypto and effectively launders it, um, or at least washes it of its origins. Um, that was called Tornado Cash. And Tornado Cash, of course, was then sanctioned by the US government for doing exactly that, for being accused of, of laundering on behalf of the North Koreans. There's now this fascinating debate about whether this is a freedom of speech issue, because Tornado Cash puts out the technology. If somebody abuses the technology, is that Tornado Cash's fault? Uh, there's a, a really interesting debate going out about, about, on about that. So that's going to be really interesting to watch as well from the Axie Infinity fallout. So Tornado Cash, wasn't that shut down and the founder was even facing well, some jail time? It, yes, it was and it wasn't. So yes, the, 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 the outwards facing entity and the sort of website of Tornado Cash, etc. has been shut down. But as far as I understand it, the protocol that stands behind it, the sort of code effectively that makes Tornado Cash is still out there on the internet and still usable. So whilst it's not easy for someone to go to a website and, and use it in the way that, that I would, because I'm not a techie, if you're if you're technically skilled, you can actually still go and use the software that Tornado Cash built. So it's kind of a thing that you can't, I don't think you can necessarily shut it down. I think it's just out there now and, and can be used. But again, it sort of gets at the, pushes at the limits of my tech skills, does this, my technology. I guess it's not good news for North Korea then that there's been a massive decline in valuation of various cryptocurrencies and assets. <laughs> yes, that's true. The 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 two billion figure I mentioned for cryptocurrency, I think that's an under, underestimate. I think North Korea is actually stolen, uh, accused of stealing far more than that um, because those that two billion was based on estimates. Someone going back to 2017, 2018. Well, the, the value has gone up since then, even though it's gone down recently. Also, that's only the um, 
ones that we know about. So I think there are other hacks that we don't know about. But the other thing is the laundering of that two billion is going to take potentially years. And so so long as the value sort of maintains, maybe goes up a bit, effectively, you're sort of putting your money into kind of a high interest or an interest gaining bank account. And so even if it takes more a little while to launder, to launder that money out, potentially they can make gains as they as they launder it. And ultimately, even if it drops in value, it's still it's stolen money. Whatever it's worth is 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 good, I suppose, for the people who stole it. In this case, North Korea being in the acquisition. Yeah, that's uh, true. So bring it back to the banking side. Where does North Korea bank? How are they able to spend money? That's a very good question. North Korea have struggled with this because obviously they want to set up effectively they uh, frankly North Korea would rather not engage with the banking system at all because North Korea is uh, meant to be a communist country. So for the idea North Korea having back the idea is in the future North Korea won't need a bank because the whole world will become communist and nobody will need banks anymore. So that's that's if you like to give you the sort of North Korean side of it. Of course, that's just not practical. North Korea does need access to banks and needs to move its money around. Uh, and so what it used to do was, um, it's particularly bank in Macau um, that, that it used to use to put its money through. The problem then is as, as the sanctions came in, the bank in Macau got uh, got closed down, so North Korea wasn't able to get its money out of there, so that access route got shut down. Increasingly, it's access to SWIFT, which is the system, as you know, which moves money around between financial institutions. North Korea's access to SWIFT was closed off, so some of its diplomats have told, particularly my co-host Gene Lee in the podcast, about um, moving money over borders in cash and having to actually carry bags of cash around. Uh, they had to get money out to their embassies. The embassies increasingly had to become self-financing because there was no way of central government in North Korea financing the embassies. So in terms of where North Korea banks, I don't know the answer to that question, but what I do know is North Korea has really struggled to get access to the financial system, partly because it's accused of hacking the financial system. But but this has led it to all sorts of different ways of how it moves its money around. And that's why crypto is really interesting, because, of course, crypto sits completely outside the traditional banking system. Um, to move money from one place to another with crypto, you don't need the interaction with any traditional bank. You just need to be able to move it to one exchange or the other. Or, frankly, carry a USB stick with your wallet and swap it with somebody who's living in another country. So it allows you to circumvent that complete traditional banking system. I see time is almost running out, but I wanted to have a final question. So for our AML KYC officers who are listening in, are there anything they should be on the lookout for uh, to to spot all this, to spot North Korea trying to do money laundering, uh, for instance? Um, it's a hard question, but maybe there's you have some tips or tricks it is because i'm not because i'm not an aml officer or a kyc officer thank uh, thank goodness i think um i i think infiltration is one thing that possibly you should watch for i you know as i say north korea are accused of infiltrating various financial uh, entities mostly cryptocurrency companies at the moment there is a concern about whether that spreads more widely and there's attempt to infiltrate more traditional financial institutions that could be uh, that could be quite interesting but i have to say in terms of spotting flows of money um, has to be said, a lot of the stuff that North Korea has done, I sort of felt seemed quite obvious in hindsight. So if you look at the theft from Bangladesh Bank, for example, there's an attempt to steal a billion dollars from Bangladesh Bank. Now, the reason it's a billion dollars, it was actually $951 million. And the reason it's that specific figure is because that's the amount of money Bangladesh Bank had in its dollar account in the New York Fed in New York. The reason they tried to transfer 951 million was because it was everything in the account. They tried to clean out the account 
uh, in New York. Well, surely somebody in New York should have a system that says, right, if, if somebody overnight tries to clean out their entire account of 951 but should we at least give them a call and make sure that was what they actually wanted to do now the new york fed did do some work and they managed to stop a lot of those transactions but again it, it didn't strike me as difficult as a, a as an anti-money laundering or, or know your customer person to spot that that was happening again bank of valletta in malta you know you had um hundreds of thousands of dollars basically leaving the bank and entering other banks via intermediaries, gaming companies, and so on. And it struck me as a, an AML individual working in these recipient banks. You know, you've got a sudden arrival of quite a lot of money from an entity, a, a gambling company in this case in Malta. Why is, why is a, an account holder at a gambling company suddenly transferring half a million euros into your account in your bank? Again, it didn't strike me that there were massively complicated underhanded tactics that North Koreans were using and so I guess the depressing lesson is you know just being being more rigorous and sticking to the current controls that you're using I suspect might actually catch quite a lot of this stuff that's the, the sort of depressing truth in the end I suppose. Thank you so much for coming on The Laundry, Jeff. Uh, super honored. And again, I cannot recommend the podcast enough. It's really interesting and I can't wait for season two. Thank you. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And we're looking forward to season two as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man.